Each of us have had moments in our life that we've had so-called terrible events. And those are initial interpretations of our reality. But a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we look back and go, oh, wow, thank you. So grateful that occurred now. But why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process when you can have the wisdom of the ages without it? By asking on the moment, when the event occurs, how is it helping me fulfill what's deep and meaningful to me? Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. In mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. If you're looking for easy access to thousands of licensed therapists, go to BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. That's BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. No better time to get started with mental health on Mental Health Awareness Month. That is now May. Take advantage of this 10% off. Just press the link in the show notes, BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. In this episode of Hope to Recharge, we welcome Dr. John Demartini. Dr. Demartini is a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, researcher, author, and global educator. He has developed a series of solutions applicable across all markets, sectors, and age groups. His education curriculum ranges from corporate empowerment programs, financial empowerment strategies, self-development programs, relationship solutions, and social transformation programs. His teachings start at the core of the issue, addressing the human factor, and range out to a multitude of powerful tools that have proven the test of time. He synthesizes the wisdom of ages, which he shares on stages in over 100 countries. His presentations, whether keynotes, seminars, or workshops, leave clients with insight into their behavior and keys to their empowerment. In this episode, Dr. Demartini discusses the Demartini value determination process, where knowing your unique hierarchy of values is the most important place to start if you intend to expand to the next level of your empowerment. Whether you wish to grow your finances, leadership, influence, or your business, whether your intention is to transform your relationships, health, or in any area of your life, it all starts with understanding what's highest on your values. Dr. Demartini has been featured on Fox News, Sky News, Larry King, Oprah, Mind Valley, Entrepreneur, Huffington Post, and many more. His methodology, techniques, and books on gratitude, the law of attraction, and others have helped Matana in her recovery exponentially. And now, the Hope to Recharge podcast with Matana. I want to thank you here, right here, right now, for everything you taught me through your books, through your talks, through your courses, because my kid's life is going to be different because I did the work. So thank you. I was born on Thanksgiving Day. And when I was four years old, my mom was putting me to bed. She said that make sure you count your blessings because those that are grateful for what they have, they receive more to be grateful for. Yes. I like to think there's two types of gratitude. The easy type, the common type, when things seem to go our way and when people support us and we think, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then there's another form of gratitude, deeper gratitude, when things appear not to go our way initially. And then we discover a hidden order in those. And we actually are now grateful for the synchronicity of those events in making sure that we get, you might say, humbled from our pride or neutralized from our fantasies by the challenges that help us become stronger and being grateful for those. And I can sometimes call that almost grace. You're pulled
poised and present and feel purposeful in the experiences that other people run from and that you've embraced. So I do believe that gratitude is the key that opens up the gateway of the heart. And, and inside the heart's love. And I don't mean that physically, although that's an expression of it. But the love that radiates out is like a window washer that washes the mind and allows the mind to be inspired. And then therefore the body enthused. And so gratitude, love, inspiration, and enthusiasm brings more certainty to your destiny and more presence to your interactions. And those all, these transcendental feelings, liberate us from the polarized emotions that distract us with impulses and instincts that we seek and avoid that keep us from the primary mission that we feel called to pursue. Yes. And I don't want to talk about gratitude so much in this book, but I, in this episode, because I really want to talk about core values. And I highly recommend that every person should read The Gratitude Effect before any big transformation in life. Go read it and read it again and again until you know it by heart and then read it again because there's so much gold in there and it's really like I say you can heal your mind but if you don't put the right foundation which is living with an open grateful heart understanding the power of gratitude and what it means and how we practice it it's going to come tumbling down so you might get off medication you might have a good relationship but then when your next adversity is going to meet you are you going to be able to walk through it? Are you going to be able to survive it? If you're not living with gratitude, you won't be able to. We have three things we have control over. Our perceptions, our decisions, and our actions. And we can prioritize our actions every day. And anytime we fill our day with high-priority actions that inspire us, that we spontaneously love fulfilling, our day doesn't fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. Right. We can also prioritize our decisions in that moment to take care of those actions. But we also have the power, really amazing power, to take whatever happens in our perceptions and ask, how is this experience on the way, not in the way? How is it helping me fulfill what's deeply meaningful to me? So you're no longer a victim of history. You're now a master of destiny. Each of us have had moments in our life that we've had so-called terrible events. And those are initial interpretations of our reality. But a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we look back and go, oh, wow, thank you. So grateful that occurred now. But why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process when you can have the wisdom of the ages without it? By asking on the moment, when the event occurs, how is it helping me fulfill what's deeply meaningful to me? If you don't run from the answer and be accountable to the answer, you will actually fuel your perceptions. And it's your ratio of perceptions that impacts your neurochemistry. It's your ratio of perceptions that give you the feeling. And if you can transcend the polarized emotional feeling of withdrawal, and the sympathetic response of fight or flight, which ages us with distress and see things on the way, find meaning, as Viktor Frankl said, in the challenges we're facing. The mean is the mean, the, the, the center between the polarities. So if we can extract out of our existential existence the meaning and allow our intuition to make us aware of the unconscious information that's there that we're overlooking and be fully conscious, mindful, we can actually turn anything that's happened in our life and our mortal body into something that allows us to love and appreciate and be inspired by our existence. So it's not what happens to us, it's how we interpret it and how we decide to act upon it. So I'm a firm believer that to give ourselves permission, quit being victims of history, quit blaming things on the outside. If you blame things on the outside, you're gonna look for a solution on the outside and you're gonna miss out on the magnificence of what's inside. Can you repeat that again? That was so profound. If you blame things on the outside, you're gonna look for some saving thing on the outside to save you something to give credit to. If you blame something on the outside, you're going to look for something to give credit to to counterbalance it. But inside, 
You're the one that decides this. It was Epictetus, the Greek philosopher, who said, first, on the journey of self-development, people blame things. The second step is they blame themselves. And the third step is there's nothing to blame. There's just a hidden order. Leibniz called it a divine perfection. And that our job is to quit judging that perfection and start looking deeper. And in the hidden, there's a hidden order in our apparent chaos if we look deep enough and transcend the, the initial misinterpretation that we've been indoctrinated by hypocritical uh, a morality that may not be real. We sometimes uh, pass down belief systems and values of other people instead of look within and discover what's really, truly meaningful to us. And how does this experience help us fulfill it? So it's interesting that you brought up that quote, because I remember where I was walking and I stopped on the side to write it down and I made a meme out of it because it was so insightful for me, because this is going to go into our next topic, which is core values. I found myself when I was dis- rediscovering myself at the age of 32 or 33, when I was trying to lift myself out of the depression and understand what I was living and what do I really want to live. And when I realized that I was not living my dream, I was living somebody else's dream. And everything that I was showing up was not based on me, Matana. It was based on what Matana should think, should be, should show up, and everything came tumbling down. I had the awakening. I had, I, I call it the gift of awakening from God for me that I came tumbling down. Could I, I could have gone to 50, 60 living this numb life versus a vibrant, happy, joyful life. If it didn't come up tumbling down, I wouldn't find it. I would be sleeping, snoozing through life. It was the biggest awakening. And one of the things that I was experiencing back in the day, and I'm still very much like this because I still didn't find myself 100%. And I don't know if I will ever find ourselves and we evolve. I found that it was very black and white. It was yes or no. It was good or bad. And then Dr. Martini comes and says, there's, there's no good or bad. There's everything. And everything bad is serving us. So how? And I'm like, wow, okay, I need to hear this over. You had an episode on your podcast. I wish I remembered which one it was. I'm going to put it in the show notes because it was my biggest wow. And you said when we have a conflict with someone that we love in our life that's, that ticks us off and we get so upset or hurt or frustrated and something goes off, it's because it's going against our core values. And I'm like, wow, I need to understand this core values a little bit more. And I remember you speaking about core values often because this is something that you really teach and give seminars of, and this is your gold. And when I realized that I didn't really know my core values, I didn't understand them. I didn't understand what core values were, but I found comfort in the understanding that, that the black and white was not helping me. And I can find the love within my hate to whatever I'm hating. And it was my biggest gift. I want to go into this core value idea because Everybody talks about what's your core value? What's your core value? Family, love, money, success, integrity. But it's much deeper than that. And I find that in relationships, especially when I'm going to go to mental illness or mental health or, or brain health, whatever we want to call it, a lot of our breakdowns are because we're not aligned with our core value. We're not even aware that we're going against it. So please take us down the path of understanding what core values are and how do we find them. Every human being lives by a set of priorities, things that are most important to least important in their life, things they value most, things they value less. I have a very high value on learning and teaching. My life demonstrates it in teaching for over 48 years. And I have a very low value on cooking and driving. I haven't cooked since I was 24. 
and I haven't driven a car in over 30 years. 30 years? Over 30 years. I learned a long time ago that whenever you're doing things that are high in your value, your self-worth goes up. Whenever you're doing things that are lower in your value, your self-worth goes down. So if you self-depreciate yourself, it's because you allow yourself to do things that aren't really deeply meaningful to you. So I quit doing anything other than research, write, teach, and travel. I pretty well don't do anything else. I've delegated and surrounded myself with people that are experts that do all those other things. And I do what I do best and mainly teach and research. So anytime you're not doing what inspires you, spontaneously is inspiring to you. You devalue yourself. And most people don't realize how simple that is. They, and what stops it is our comparison to other people. We walk in a mall and we see somebody over here that looks like they're more intelligent than us. So we subordinate to their intelligence and not on our own. And we think they're more successful than us. And we subordinate to them and we think we're not as successful as them. And we self-depreciate. And then we go around the wheel to our finances. They have more money than us. So who are we? And they have more stable relationships. So what's wrong with us? Anytime you put people on pedestal, you'll minimize yourself in turn. And in reverse, anytime you put people in pit, you'll exaggerate yourself. And anytime you exaggerate yourself and inflate yourself, puff yourself up with pride or deflate yourself, minimize yourself, contract yourself with shame, you're not being yourself. And we all want to be loved for who we are, but we're not even being ourselves to be able to be loved for it. So as long as we exaggerate or minimize ourselves relative to others and exaggerate and minimize others relative to us and compare ourselves to others and put them on pedestals or pits, instead of comparing our daily actions to what we value most, we're going to be a cat expecting to swim like a fish and beating ourselves up or a fish expecting to climb a tree and beating ourselves up. And what happens is whenever we beat ourselves up, we offload decisions and give more power to the herd and conform to the, to the many instead of allowing ourselves to be a unique individual that's a one that allows us to make the unique difference that we want to make. We don't make a difference fitting in. We make a difference standing out and learning how to articulate what we value in terms of what other people value respectfully. Liberate says to go do something extraordinary with our life, making a difference that serves, which allows us sustainable, fair exchange and remuneration for our service. So living congruently by what you value most is one of the most significant things we can do because that is where we're most objective. That is where most equanimity is born, which means not exaggeration or minimization of self. That's when most equity and sustainability occurs. We don't put people on pedestals or pits. And that's when we're actually awakening our executive function where we get inspired vision. We strategically plan to achieve it. We execute the plans and we have self-governance. We calm down with our angelic self, our animal self. And we allow ourselves to be inspired and grateful and loving and present with, with our life again. So living congruently by what we value most is crucial. But we might ask, what? how do we determine those values? If you ask somebody what their values are, I assure you, I've been doing it for over 43 years. Very seldom do you see people that actually tell you the truth. They don't know. They write down what the social idealisms about what they think it should be by mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, the rabbis around us that tell us this is the way we should be. And we're living by shoulds instead of who we are. And giving ourselves permission to authentically express what our own unique values are is amazing. So looking at how we fill our space, we fill our space with things that are valuable to us and we push things away from us that isn't. How do we spend our time? We find time, make time, spend time on things that are valuable to us. What energizes us? When we're doing something that's really high in our values, the energy goes up. When we're doing something that's low in our values, we're drained. What do we spend our money on? Look carefully. You make money, find money, spend money on things that are valuable to you. You don't want to spend money on things that aren't. What is it that you're most organized in and ordered in? You bring order and organization to things you value, and you don't get around to making sense out of it and bringing order to things that aren't. Look at where you're most disciplined, reliable, and focused. I'm spontaneously disciplined to do my research every day and teach. I do it every day. I don't have to be reminded. 
Anything you don't have to be reminded to is valuable to you. It's intrinsic value. Your highest value is the most intrinsic value. Then you look at what you think about, what you visualize, and what you internally dialogue with yourself about how you would love your life to be that's showing evidence of coming true. If there's no evidence, it's fantasy. But if there's evidence, it's something you're willing to work towards, and it means it's valuable to you, and you're willing to do what it takes to achieve it. Then look at what you converse with other people about most. Then look at what it is that inspires you, brings tears of inspiration and gratitude. Thank you, universe. And then look at what it is that's a goal that's persistent, consistent, that you actually never stop and you keep achieving. And then look at what you want to study spontaneously and learn and read and watch on videos? What do you feel want to feed your mind with? If you look at those questions and answer three answers to the questions with those 39 answers of 13 questions and look at what answers keep showing up and reiterate over and over again, which one shows up most frequent, second most frequent down the line, it'll give you an amazing opportunity to look at what you really, your life demonstrates as valuable, not your ideal fantasy about what you wish it would be. But what is actually being demonstrated by your life? That's where you start. On my, on my website, drdmartin.com, there's a complimentary, free, private value determination process. Take about 30 minutes. You can store it there. You can come back to it. You can add to it again. No one will see it. And do it again and again to make sure you're really truthful to yourself. Because most people, when they first do it, they're caught between what they think it ought to be and should be and versus what the answers really are. And you got to really answer integrally about what those answers are if you want to get an idea then it's wise to start structuring your life around what you value most. I love teaching. So I basically said, I'm going to do teaching every day and I'm going to delegate the rest and I'm going to make sure I serve people with it and do it in a way where it's compensatory. And that allows me to then use the money to buy the other individuals to delegate things to, to, to be able to hire them. And then in the process of doing that, I'm now liberated. I can now do what I love every day. There's absolutely no reason why an individual can't do what they love and love what they do on a daily basis. I've been teaching that for 40 something years, how, how to do that. And I know that if they'll prioritize their lives and fill it with things that are deeply meaningful, the very highest value our identity revolves around, our epistemological pursuit of knowledge revolves around, our teleological purpose revolves around identifying that highest value and sticking to that is one of the most significant things we can learn in our life. I have so many questions. Okay. I want to go back to what you said. Look at what you spend the most time on look at the actions that you take in, at, in your day. So I'm thinking back, I filled my day with actions that I thought were making me happy, but they really weren't. So how do we go deep and say, is it what I was programmed growing up? And the deep programming is so deep that I don't even know if it's real or not. How do we break that? If we hear in our head imperative language, I should, I ought to, I'm supposed to, I got to, I have to, I must, I need to, it's not you. It's an injected value of an outer authority, which Freud called the superego, the moralizer inside us that whispers to us about how we should be. If we're doing something, we go, this is what I love doing. This is what I'm inspired to do. This is what my choice is. It's an intrinsic drive. It's an indicative, not an imperative. So that's one of the discernments between something you're doing that you feel you have to do. If you hear yourself saying, I really should do this. I really ought to be doing this. I have to do this. It's not you. That's a duty. There's ontology, which is the study of being. When you live by your highest value, you move in the pursuit of that. There's deontology, fitting in and living by the duty of the society. And you're basically doing what other people expect you to do and you should do. The freedom in life comes from working your way from duty into design and taking command and master planning your life the way you would love it. We know, I think everybody has seen this, just looking just superficially, 
that if you fill your day with very high priority actions and deeply meaningful, at the end of the day, you feel you're on top of the world. You've got everything that was most important done and you're more resilient, more adaptable, more flexible and agile when you get home. And no matter what happens, you can handle it. But if you feel that you had put fires out all day, you never got around to what was important, you're a bear and you're irritable and you tend to project and you tend to be more critical and you're amygdala. Whenever you're living by your highest values, you activate the forebrain. The blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain and activates the executive center, the medium brain frontal cortex. And whenever you're living in lower values, it activates the hindbrain, hindsight, and the amygdala. And the amygdala wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure. It tends, it tends to polarize us and emotionalize us and make us volatile and make us have fantasies that we fear the loss of and nightmares that we fear the gain of. And we're living in anxieties and fears. Because when, and, and that's designed that way as a feedback to let us know we're not living authentically according to what we value most. So our physiology, our psychology, even our sociology around us is constantly trying to guide us back to our authentic self where we're not puffing ourselves up or minimizing ourselves and not judging so much. We're able to love and do what we love every day. And we're capable of doing this. I've been very blessed in my life because I've delegated everything else. I'm, I'm, I'm freed. And people say, well, that's because you've earned it. You're wealthy because of it. Because you led with your core values. Because of it. I was floundering in a practice when I was 27 years old, trying to practice. And then I read a book called The Time Track by Alec McKenzie. And God almighty, when I started to implement prioritization to what I was doing, my business went tenfold up. I hired people to do everything else. I never did those things again. I never went back. So at 27, I learned this principle. And I never had to go back and do all those things that everybody thinks they have to do. I do what I love in a day. And that inspires. And you're most productive. And you build momentum. And you're more congruent. And you get to walk your talk instead of limp your life. And you're inspired by life. And you're grateful spontaneously. Because you see everything on the way. They, when people are living according to their highest values, they literally see things as feedback, not as futility and failure. So it's so important to live by priority. So please go on the website and take advantage of this. It's free, it's private, and just do it again and again. Do it a week from now and a month from now and a quarter from now and every quarter. Just do it because it can evolve. And be honest with yourself. It, it can be really enlightening and start structuring your life according to priority. Ask yourself on a daily basis, what is the highest priority thing I can do to help me fulfill what is most deeply meaningful that serves the greatest number of people in the most efficient, effective way today? If you do that, your life changes. So let me go, a lot of my audience is orthodox. So we follow rules, right? We're rule followers. And we live in countries that you can't break the rule. Although if you do, you might have find yourself in deep trouble. How do we take our Bible that we go by, and it is our highest value, a lot of us, and the rules of countries, of society. You're not allowed to steal. You're not allowed to kill. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to rape. You're like, what if somebody says my highest value is to feel love? So I'm going to feel love to anybody that's out there. And I'm just going to take advantage of anyone because that's my highest value. Many people can justify in their minds things. That's not what I'm asking. If you look really core what really is important to you, which I've been doing now for 43 years. I've not ever seen anybody say, well, my highest value is to rape somebody. No, love, to feel love. To show love. Don't confuse infatuation, romantic animal passion with love. Okay. The impulses and the infatuations. When you're infatuated with somebody, you're blind to the downsides and infatuated with the upsides. You're conscious of the upsides, unconscious of the downsides. When you're resentful to somebody and you're avoiding them, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upside. When you truly love somebody, you're fully conscious. 
and you have respect for both sides. And that's the divine law. So it's not going to defy the divine law. The human, the, the human will match divine will the moment we live by priority because we're most objective and most balanced, which is what divine law is about. Divine law is love and respect. It's not about the passionate animal behavior that leads to the rapes and the incest and these things. That's not, the, that's not what it's designed for. Those are the symptoms of unfulfilled highest values and then having the immediate gratifying compulsions and impulses run your life. When you live by your highest values, there's GABA and glutamate, which is an inhibitory and a facilitatory transmitter that calms down the nucleus accumbens, which is the pleasure center and the pain center and calms them down and brings self-governance. And so we're not run by the external impulses. We're run in the instincts of fear. We're run by our mission. And our mission is service. There's no way an individual can have fulfillment without taking their skills that they love to contribute and bring it to people in a way that fulfills other people's needs. We have a cortex, a motor cortex for service and a sensory cortex for reward. When those are balanced and objective, living by our highest values in the forebrain, those find equanimity and equity and sustainable fair exchange, which brings fulfillment. And then we're now of service to people. And so the divine rules and the human rules there match. There's no conflict there. But when we attempt to live by lower values and then justify our impulses, and then we go and not care about human beings, then we confuse that with this selfish pursuits. That's what our pursuit, our selfish pursuits about. That's not what I'm describing. So there is one core that leads to everything. There is one core truth. If I define the very core, I'm not talking about a romantic love. No, I'm talking about like a spiritual, yeah. Aristotle said that there were two vices on the extremes and there was a true virtue in the, in the center. And the true virtue was a synthesis, the mean, the golden mean between the pairs of opposites. When a person pursues their highest values, they go into the mean, they extract meaning. The highest value was called the telos by Aristotle. And the Aristotle's influence has influence on many spiritual teachings. And so that, that mean was the meaning that we extracted from our polarities of perception. If we're infatuated with something and we're conscious of the upside and unconscious of the downside, our intuition is trying to whisper the downside to get us back into balance so we can get back to the mean to live by divine law, not this human passion. And if we're resentful to somebody and we're angry at somebody and we have an instinct to avoid them, our intuition is trying to point out the upsides so we get back to the mean, so we can love them again. Because we're not, put, it's not, they're not worth putting on pedestals or pits. They're worth putting in hearts. And so divine law is to, to love, but not a romantic love, the passion, but a divine love where we can actually just love people regardless of their experiences. And know that the facades that they put on, the personas and masks that they wear, are not who they are. Who they are is something more deeply profound. And who we are is more deeply profound than our impulses and instincts that run ours periodically. But that following that is what the highest value leads to. It leads to an objective state, which is a neutral state where we're most resilient and adaptable, and where our human will matches divine law. The paradox of free will and predestination join in that moment because we're not infatuated or resentful where those things occupy our mind and we're wanting to change us relative to others or change others relative to us. There's nothing to change. There's something to love. And that state doesn't lead to rapes, doesn't lead to incest, doesn't lead to murder or thieving or all the things that are the commandments that are basics of life. So there is a basics of life and true values of humanity, and it's based on that. There's individual value 
no universal values have been discovered by scientists or theologians or philosophers or psychologists, but there is a synthesis of all of them. If you study values, you'll see the complete spectrum of values across society. You have somebody that's pro something and there'll be somebody that'll be anti. But if you put those two together, they're both incomplete and they have a subjective bias leading to those results. But there's a synthesis between them. And the divine law is the synthesis between those two pairs of opposites. And so our individual values are, are meant to meet with the opposite values in order to teach us how to humble us from our pride and to bring us from our lows and bring us back into the center. And that's how the divine love, you might say, or divine laws actually guide human beings back to loving one another and appreciating people. And I think that's, we sometimes confuse it, the immediate gratification which is an amygdala response living by lower values with this true love that I'm describing, that I've demonstrated in thousands of people over the years in my breakthroughs. About 100,000 people have gone through a process to show them the distinction. Because if you don't know the distinction, you'll, you'll confuse love by the term I'm using with a fantasy romantic puppy love. Yeah. I often talk about the experience of love, that it's not romantic, that when you practice gratitude, you suddenly find love in flowers, in driving in the car, just the experiences of life can melt your heart like the same experience of a romance, but you're bringing it to stuff through your universe that are happening and you're experiencing that same emotion of love. That can even bring tears, real tears of joy. The tears are confirmations you're seeing the whole, not the part, the tear of gratitude. Yeah. We have a stream of consciousness, according to William James. And the stream of consciousness means the moment by moment interpretation of our reality. And at any moment, we're judging something and we're probably filtering it through our values and attracted or repelled. And But if we ask whatever we're attracted to, what's the downside? What are we repelled from? What's the upside? If we balance ourselves with self-governance, in those moments, we actually find the poised center. We get a tear of gratitude to confirm that now there was just something magnificent, a divine magnificence, a divine perfection, a divine order in that moment that we missed. And every time we miss it, we store all of our imbalances in our subconscious mind and it keeps running our life and we keep creating turmoil to guide us back to that love moment. But if we take the time and ask quality questions, because the quality of our life is based on quality questions, yes, and ask quality questions and see both sides simultaneous, we're liberated. Because sometimes we think something's terrible. And then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we look back and go, wow, there was a divine perfection in that that I didn't see. And I judged it. My human limitations put a judgment on it only because I didn't see it. I didn't take the time to look for the other side. Why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process and have the wisdom without it by just going and asking, where's the other side in that moment? And balance the equation and find the divine love that's there at that moment in each moment of the stream of consciousness. We have that capacity to do it. I've been doing it for years. I've been teaching people how to do this. And all of a sudden, their life all of a sudden becomes an appreciation of the omnipresence of that love that's there that we forsake with our own interpretations and our own biases. We have to get beyond our own biases to experience the divine love. And to understand it. So I want to take, I want to ask you to help me out with something that my core values, I'm in a battle with them. I think I know them, but they constantly, when I, I check, whenever something comes up and I say, do I want to do something? I check in with my core values. Do they align? So one of my core values is, religion, orthodox, the way I 
my orthodoxy and my husband's orthodoxy and my children and my parents are very different. But the way that aligns with me, I used to live orthodox the way people told me to, and it crushed me. It came, I, I came tumbling down. Then I had to find what, fail, what felt right to me and how I wanted to serve God and be with God and experience God in my own life. So one of my things are Sabbath. It's non-negotiable, non-negotiable. We have a Sabbath every single weekend. It's like a Thanksgiving every single weekend, two grand meals. I cook, I prepare, we have family. I will never travel on a weekend. I shouldn't say never because never say never, but it's not even something that I'm enticed to do. I will never be even considering eating not kosher because it's my highest value. It's not even a question. If I'm if I lived in China, I lived in Hong Kong, it was never an option. And I said, one of my greatest passions is food. But when I travel and I travel a lot, I always have to look for the kosher food, but it's my highest value, even though it's something that's hard for me. Another thing is my children's my highest value, but I travel a lot. I work a lot. Am I in conflict with my highest value? Because I'm giving my work a lot of my time of my passion of breaking the stigma of mental health understanding our mind, neuroplasticity, educating people on gratitude. And sometimes my kids get neglected because I'm traveling, I'm doing my passion. But if you ask me at 120 on my deathbed, did I fulfill my life? I would say, call my kids in and ask them if I did, because if they feel that I neglected them, nothing was worth it. So how do we align ourselves? I don't live by shoulds. What I do is I look at honestly at what my life demonstrates, because your life, every decision you make is based on what you believe at that moment will give you the greatest advantage or disadvantage. And you're going to be faced with paradoxes. You're going to be faced with situations where I want to eat kosher, but I'm now in a city that there's no transportation, there's, it's locked down, there's no way of getting the food, so how do I do plan B? I'm, not, I'm just using that as a situational ethics. So you do the greatest thing you can based on your values. And if your values are extremely extreme on that, then you will find a way of you'll prepare in advance, think in advance and carry the kosher food with you to make sure you have the food. So your hierarchy of values will be revealed in what your life demonstrates. So I don't go by what people say. I've never found that to be useful. I go by what they live and I look at what you do and I look at how you spend your time. And I had a lady the other day who said her highest values are her children. And then we actually looked at the day week by week, and count up the hours she was with her kids. And 14 hours a day was working or thinking about work as a single mom. Now, in that situation, she said, my highest value is kids, but her life was demonstrating that I have my own independence, want my own business, don't want to sacrifice that, and I have a nanny for the kids, and I'm with my kids every moment I can, but I have to make sure that the bills are paid. I said, I agree that you have a value on your kids, but if you really had a value on your kids, you'd find a man to take care of that and delegate that part, the business part, and you'd go focus on the kids. And she goes, I did that. And that's what made me divorce. And that's why I've got, because I couldn't rely on them. I said, because you have a desire to not have to be dependent on a guy and you don't want to admit that, but that's high on your values. So we have to look at what your life demonstrates, not by what you say. And she got the realization that she did not want to take a risk in her life because of the wounds that has stored in her subconscious mind to take a risk on relying on a guy to give the standards that she wanted to live. And so she was making sure she was working and producing a business where she wasn't dependent on a guy to make sure she could give her kids the lifestyle she wanted. So the business was a little higher than the kids, but kids are right next to it, underneath it. When she looked at that, she realized, now I explain the decisions I make. Because if something happens with my, 
my, my business, I have a nanny taking care of the kids. If the business is doing fine, I'm with my kids. And she looked at how she made her decisions. So I don't go by what the ideal is, that the ideal, what you've been taught. I'm interested in what your life demonstrates. Now, if there's a conflict between society's expectations and that, then that's where the conflicts are. Confl- you never have a conflict in your own values. You have a conflict between your values and what you assume are your values that are actually injected values that you now have conflicts with. That's why you just said something very important. There's a slight variation between the people in your family's idea of the orthodox approach to living and Judaism. So that's exactly what's been found. I've worked with many orthodox Jews. No two of them are same. They all have a slight different angle. So there's about 15 uh, million or 20 million uh, variations of Judaism, really. And that's not bad or good. It's just that there's a guideline that people live by, and there's the rules, and there's the biblical guidelines but there's interpretations that give latitude for individuals. Different rabbis have different ideas about how to interpret that. I've, I've listened to many rabbis, and they all have slight variations of how they interpret things. And so people are drawn to the rabbis that allow them to the latitude that they need for their own value structure. And I, I don't make it right or wrong. I just say this, that's what people do. They, they try to find a group, a community that allows them to not be so alienated to be themselves so they can fit in and so they can allow themselves to to function. But you have a set of values in your life and you got to look at what your life demonstrates more than what you think it's supposed to be or should be. Look at what your life demonstrates. That tells you what you really value. My value is traveling and teaching. I've traveled over 20 million miles. I've been to 154 countries speaking and my highest value is that. I love my children, but if I look at what my life has demonstrated, teaching has been important. I'm just blessed to be able to afford to have my children travel with me and they meet me in different places and they're grown up now. And and I have one that's actually taking on the the company and actually teaching with me, which is inspiring. Another one helps design my club and and travels. And, And so each of those children are now, we're blending more and more of our life actually as we, as they're maturing even more interaction as we go along. But if I look at what my life demonstrated, I had a very high value on teaching and learning. And I spent more hours doing that than sometimes. And I'd be at home maybe with the kids right there in the room, but we'd be reading. Right. So if somebody wants their core value, you said you shouldn't say these shoulda, woulda, coulda. So for me, I want, I don't know if it is, I want my children and my family to be core values because I really think in my mind, there is no greater sadness for me as an individual than being neglected by my parents. My parents gave an abundance of love and joy, abundance. If you, if you ask yourself and make a list of all the action steps that you would love to have incorporated into your life as a mother, made a list of all the things you'd love to make sure that you do, a tick box, a checkbook, check, checklist, and then ask how specifically is doing these actions helping me fulfill what's highest on my value, which may be teaching also or maybe your spiritual quest. If you link it, the more links you make and answer how specifically is spending time with my kids helping me fulfill my mission? How is spending time with my mission and fulfilling my mission helping my kids? If you link those, anytime two things are on the values that are linked together, they help each other and support each other and they don't interfere with each other. Anytime two values are closer together and linked together, they enhance each other. So if I ask, how is spending time with my kids helping me get my message out into the world and teach? And how is spending time teaching helping my kids? If I link those and link those, my brain doesn't see them separated. It sees them happening at the same time. So the more, the higher the values are, closer they are in a hierarchy of values, the more they 
support each other. And the farther they are from each other, the more they look like they're hindering each other. Now it brings it all together. So my husband and I are vastly different, but we're best friends and we complement each other. We both are deep thinkers and we give each other space to grow. And we we're really are, we're each other's cheerleaders. And I often think with him, together with him, and I analyze with him. And I remember a few weeks ago, I said to him, Ari, what if I'm going to regret doing so much for the mental health world? And in 20 years, my kids will say to me, but mommy, you weren't really there for me when I wanted to X, Y, and Z. And you were always in meetings and you were traveling. And I, I, we do a lot as a family. We travel a lot as a family. We do a lot, probably more than most families. But from what my kids want for me, they want to be with me all day. So my husband says, who said that being with them all day is serving them? Maybe teaching them that being a person of service to humanity and changing the world and making a difference is the greatest way of showing up. Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others, essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. Who said that being with them all day is serving them? Maybe teaching them that being a person of service to humanity and changing the world and making a difference is the greatest way of showing up. Einstein said exemplification is the greatest teacher. If you're living an inspired and authentic and congruent life and living your, your spiritual fulfillment, that is teaching them the mirror neurons and the chameleon effect vastly. I want to share a story that I was uh, having lunch with Winnie Mandela and her son. And this is uh, Nelson Mandela's first wife. It was interesting. The son went to meet with Nelson as he grew up, late 20s, mid 20s, and then was upset because Winnie had, when they divorced, Winnie was a little upset. And so the son grew up hearing mama's story, not daddy's story. And so he goes and confronts Nelson and says, Nelson, father, you weren't there for me all the time. You didn't spend enough time with me because he had an idealism. See, many times children with a different set of values project their values and idealisms onto families. And everybody's got slight variations of different values. And anytime you expect somebody else to live in your values or you expect to live in other people's values, you're going to have futility because you're not going to do it unless you can see how doing that's going to help you fulfill yours and then you'll do it. Nelson turns to him and has said, son, I live in a country called South Africa. There's millions of people that live here. I believe that I gave you more attention than all the other children in my family of South Africa. I felt guilty that I gave you more attention than the rest of the children because I gave you more attention than the 80 million people that live in this country. And his perspective was a global or a national 
family. Seneca, the Roman poet, said, you measure an individual by, by their most distant ends. How big is their vision? Are they living in a small community family? Are they living in a community? Are they living in a city? Are they living in a state, a nation, a world, or beyond? You measure their by their most distant ends. I learned from Einstein, Epictetus, and Socrates, a really interesting thing. It was Epictetus that wrote about Socrates, and Socrates said, I don't, I'm, I'm not a man of Corinth. I'm not a man of Athens. I'm a citizen of the world. And then Einstein said, I'm not a man of my city. I'm not a man of my country. I'm a citizen of the universe. And even Stephen Hawking, when he was interviewed in a new movie that I get to be with in him, with him, basically said that the universe is my home. And I've said the universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country is a room in the house and every city is a platform that I share my heart and soul. And I live on a ship that goes around the world, as you know. And so it's all perspective. If you live on the whole world, you're never away from your family. Instead of talking to them one-on-one, you may be Skyping them at times. But with technology, we have access to that. So sometimes we beat ourselves up because we compare ourselves to other people's box that they've got themselves stuck in, or a traditional box that may not be the only box, particularly for this age, technologically. We have to give ourselves permission to broaden it or otherwise stagnation occurs in the thinking of other people. Sometimes the renegade and the maverick, the misfit, is the person that actually revolutionizes and upgrades and changes things. Maimonides, basically, with a Jewish scholar or whatever, his idea about Judaism was a slightly different than some of the predecessors. And he caused a bit of a revolution. And then there's others that have come along and came along from the time of Philo, others, and Josephus. So all of them had slight variations and interpretations. And there's somebody with a new interpretation is sometimes essential for the for revolution and new insights. So instead of beating yourself up and comparing yourself to a box or an interpretation, look inside your heart and look at what you really feel. And if you feel love for your kids, your children, and you hold them in your arms, maybe you're out doing something for thousands of people with your message. How do you know that might not be? My daughter is taking over my organization. How do I know that's not exactly what's necessary? She loves it. This is her mission. She feels it's her calling. And as a result of it, if I hadn't have done that, she wouldn't have that. My daughter is also in the fashion industry and having a beautiful baby coming. She will tell you that if it wasn't for what I'm doing, she wouldn't have gotten in the fashion industry because the travel took her to stay in hotels sometimes, which took her into malls sometimes to see couture clothes, to get creative ideas for fashion designs. So there's a hidden order in, the, in our apparent chaos sometimes. And asking quality questions to liberate us from the box about how it's supposed to be and allow us to appreciate the divine plan as it is, I think it is, uh, is also liberating. So ask yourself how is specifically when you're doing things that maybe you're not able to be with the kids that day. Maybe you have a, a function. How specific is it helping the kids? And how is spending time with the kids helping me? And how is them spending time with other people and socially interacting and having other people surrogating, playing different roles? How is that helping them? And how not just me? Imagine a baby's born. This is an interesting question. The baby's a baby's born. And all of a sudden it talks, right? Five minutes after it's born. And it's suckling on the breast. And it looks up at you and it says, what are your credentials? And you go, I have love for you. That's, that's sufficient. But the question is, what are your credentials to, to be the one that raises that child? Sometimes the lower the socioeconomic, the, the mother raises and does everything. And sometimes the higher the socioeconomic, they give specialist insights to, to let them experience it. I live on a ship called the world. There's a Jewish family, very wealthy family that had a daughter who's 16 years old. They bought two apartments on the ship, one for her to live and one for Nobel Prize winner, Jewish Nobel Prize winners. And they would come and spend six weeks and they would pay them 
to spend six weeks there training her in a special education. And I watched her from age 16 all the way through her early 20s and into her 20s. I've been on there 20 years living on the ship. And I watched her. And what she ended up doing, what she was able to accomplish was far greater than what if her own mom and dad were there only 24 hours a day. So we have to sometimes stop and look, what, do, what is the decisions we're making? And, and are those decisions allowing us to fulfill our values and their values? And are they giving them something unique that's allowing them to do something amazing with their life? And teaching our children not get caught in a box if they go, well, you weren't there. Well, maybe being there, if, if, if the mother is a single mother and she's having to go out and work, she's having to juggle between being there and making sure there's money and food on the table. So she may say, I'm putting food on the table. I am there in another way. Right. And so you have to stop and really look at all the ways your mother's there, all the way your father's there. Because sometimes we get a box about, it's got to be a, a little hug all day long. Maybe that's not to your advantage. You need to have some resilience, adaptability, and interaction, and think for yourself and get creative. And there's you, you need all the above to grow. So I think there's a, a, a bit more latitude if we look through those eyes. I have a question. Do we have a few more minutes? Okay. Now I'm taking from a parent's perspective. I know that my parents raised me with core values, gratitude, honesty, family first, respecting my mother. My father, there was no negotiable with respecting my mother. You have to respect. And respect doesn't mean the, the ordinary respect, like real respect. When she's sleeping, you're quiet. You, you ask her what she needs, like that kind of respect. And the last one, never interfere in somebody else's marriage. Never be a cause of somebody's downfall in somebody else's marriage. Keep your mouth shut. Make sure you're only bringing love, not hate to somebody's marriage. Those were our core values. Now you'll take all of our six children, like my siblings, they'll recite it. Like it was so in our DNA and I'm proud of it. I am so proud of it that this is our core. But sometimes I was, I met with my sister that my whole family lives in Israel. She came in yesterday for business and I met with her and I said, do you find sometimes that we lead our lives be for our parents' core value because they're so proud of us when we do the right things. We're like addicted to their compliments and how when we do something good, my father goes as if we saved the world and it could be the smallest thing. So are we addicted to that complimentary of my father? Are we doing it because we think it's the right thing? And so as parent, my bigger, my bigger question is, how do I let my children develop their core values by me living passionately my core values? And if they veer off mine, not take it personally and say, oh my God, they're going to be terrible humans. They're not going to be honest. They're not going to be good. They're going to see the catastrophe versus, okay, how do we let them turn into their own core values and find them? Right. Great question. First of all, no two people have the same hierarchy of values. I've been doing it 43 years. I've done interpretations on a lot of people, tens and hundreds of thousands of people. No two people have the same core structures of that hierarchy of values. So a husband and wife also have different values, many times quite complementary opposite. If he's very dedicated to business, you may be focused on the kids or you may be focused on getting a message out and he may be focused on health. There's different values. Each individual will demonstrate their love for their children through their value system. That's to be expected. And each child will be interpreting their love through their value system. And they'll have a different set of values. Now, if you communicate what you believe will be valuable to the children in terms of their values, they take it on board. If you do something that, they, that you project onto the child that challenges their values, they'll fight you because it goes against their core values. So respectfully communicating, not just to parents, 
but parents also non-autocratically to the children allows the children to see how those values will help them in their life. Because if you communicate your values in terms of their values, they are more receptive to taking them on board and incorporating them into their life. But if you communicate in a way where it goes against their values and it's autocratic and it's forced with persuasion, that's the least effective way of teaching and learning and the least way, least effective way of managing a business or respecting another human being. So the first thing to do is to find out what the values of each child is. They're different. I have one that loves video games. I have one that was involved in fashion, another one that loved learning, completely different value systems. My job is to do what I'm doing, mine, exemplify an inspired life. And then when I'm talking to them, honor what their values are and communicate what I think will help them in their life, in their values, and they're receptive and they learn from that and they open up to it. Like a, like a, any sales process, when you're selling your product, service, or idea in terms of the dominant buying motive, which is their value system, if you want them to be receptive to the idea of what you want to sell. If you don't respect their values and you tell them this is what they need, they'll go, look, buddy, I don't, that's not what I think. And you'll project onto them. So coercion and, and, and punishment reward of extreme nature can make people store those punishments and those rewards in their subconscious mind and be frightened of breaking those rules. But that's it's not necessarily the most uh, effective way of communicating a value system into somebody. It's wiser to do it. When I take children who are in school and they're taking classes that are uninspiring to them, and I ask them, how is taking this class helping you fulfill what is inspiring to you? Once I make those links, they go and engage and they excel in the, in the class. All I did is help them see how it's going to help them get what they want. Nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what they value most. And believe it or not, you're in a relationship. You want your values met. If your values aren't being met in a relationship, it starts having challenges. So caring enough about another human being and the other members of the family to find out what they value most and to articulate what we feel is core values that are important to us in terms of those values. So they'll be receptive and open up to them and incorporate them into life is a respectful way of communication. And you get the benefit of now having a camaraderie as a family working with similar values. Do children really, are they wise enough and aware enough to know their core values? You look at what their life is demonstrating. My, my son started doing video games at a young age, okay? And some people think, well, he's just wasting his time. I don't know. He's got 36,000 followers now. And he's, got, he's doing games and he's educating people and he's teaching philosophy. He has, he has a quote for the day and he's teaching philosophy and he's going inside the games and finding out what are the psychology of the games and what does it relate to human behavior. And he's doing all kinds of things there that's novel, but he's building a business out of it. It's going to be his career out of it. That's his mission because it's a technology that we didn't have when I was growing up. We had pinball machines and things like that, which people played. So that's his values. He's been doing it now for from three to 30, 27 years. He's got expertise in that field. Not me, but he does. Mine was human behavior since I was 17. My other daughter's fashion since she was three or four years old. She's been fashion. She used to go into stores and help people select clothes. So those are individual values. If I communicate in those values and let them excel in those values, that's their, that's what inspires them. And now what they'll do is they'll incorporate things that I'm sharing in terms of their life. If I can respect them enough to communicate in a way where they get their values met, I don't want to force them into my values. If you try to get everybody, anytime there's two people exactly the same, one's not necessary in the world. You have to be able to give that individuality some expression. You squash them. Learning has always been proven to find out what is naturally an inclination inside the child and to build upon that by linking all the other things you want to teach the child to that value and they'll excel.
they'll just they'll automatically excel in the, in the learning process. Well, I want to go with the gaming because I have a son that loves gaming, loves, loves gaming. And I feel like he's developing an addictive personality to it. And it's not that he loves the gaming. He loves doing what he's good at. So he gets attracted to it and it's he'll start playing more and more, but he disconnects from time. And then there's a ripple effect when you disconnect from time. Can I say he values game? Is that a life value game? It depends. It depends on what you do. In, in our era, there was no game. So we grew up in a time when gaming, what the heck's that? But my son had a game the other day called Journey. And on this game, you are on a quest for wisdom. And so what happens, you're on a journey walking through the mountains and having to be challenged by experiences. And you're having to sort through and figure out how do you handle those challenges. And if you do, you gain another point in wisdom. And so there's many games out there. It depends on the type of game. There are many games out there that is based on philosophical thinking, religious thinking. There's a whole plethora of games out there that most people just go games, bad. I don't think that's a fair assessment. Some of those games are extreme. There's mathematical games to teach you math. There are history games to teach you history. There are engineering games to build things. He uses, he's done 700 different games in different areas. And he finds the ones that more people are intrigued by because if they're if it's showing them how to do something and it's helping them get what they're wanting in life, then it's inspiring to them. And then they're engaged in wanting to learn from him on how to do those games because he's teaching people philosophical thinking and also principles about life and also practical things about life through the gaming. It's an educational process. So he's using, I don't think, Gaming is his core value. I think education is his core value. And he found the technology that works for him. Social interaction and expressing ideas that bring fulfillment to people is what he's doing. He's just using technology to do it. Exactly. His value is connecting. But the games are ways of connecting socially with people. And when he's on there, there's thousands of people on there interacting with him. And that's his way of expressing himself. He was quite introverted very young, but he found that that was his way of connecting with people that had similar mindedness. He used to read books. He'd read 18 books a week on things that were involved in, in, in philosophy and gaming when he was a kid. So that's what his natural love was. So I just kept allowing him go. Develop what you naturally express. His vocabulary is high. His, his skills are higher because of that. If I would have forced him into engineering, I, I, there was a time when I actually tried to force him to do something and encourage him to do this. And I was just watching it. Just, you know, I didn't communicate it very effectively in his values. And then I realized, let's merge these. Let me see if I can communicate and how it will help him in his games. And he created, he calls himself the playful philosopher now. And so he's merged the games and the philosophy. And so he's studying philosophy and he's studying religious studies and he's studying sciences and he's studying all kinds of things to bring new ideas into the game, to share with people associated with that game. And he's finding games that relate to the things that he's studying. And he's now, that's his way of expressing himself. That's not how I would have done it. But that's not gaming. Again, I'm going to go back to it and I'll say, you'll have hundreds, millions of people that are gaming. They're just doing it in order to pass by time because they don't want to sit with themselves. They have no idea where they want to go. They don't know what they want to do. So gaming is not their core value. His is also entertainment because he loves entertaining people. Okay. So that might be the core value. Right. So don't, just because they're sitting in front of the game, I, I'll give a story. I had a lady that, um, a concerned mother that came to me about maybe a year and a half, oh, it's two years now, probably since COVID, two years ago, came to me. I've got a 22 year old son. He just wants to sit in front of the TV. 
can watch TV all day long. He does a little bit of work, makes a little bit of money, but he's just not, he just wants to do TV. Can you consult with him and, and straighten him out? That's a mother's perspective. Right? Her mother has a different set of values. She's projecting on the son, not understanding the son's values. And he's in college and he just gets just enough by in college to get the parents off his back. That kind of so I went in there and I said, so your mom asked me to chat with you. Yeah. I said, what, what are you up to watching? What are you watching? It's a, one of those shows where you solve problems in crime, those crime solvers. And I said, so your mom said, if you like watching TV, yeah. What specific uh, shows do you like to watch? Every one of them were crime solvers, forensic. I said, the common thread to me tells me that you have an interest in solving problems. He says, I love it. I try to an anticipate what they're going to find on these, these shows beforehand and see if I can solve it. I'm actually taking notes. Here's my notepad. I said, have you ever considered pursuing that as a career? And he said, I'd love to. Wow. I said, I said, why don't we talk to your mom? So we got the mom in there. I said, you're labeling him lazy because he's not doing what you think is important because you're projecting your values righteously onto him. But his value is solving problems. And he wants to go into the crime business. He wants to solve problems. An investigator. She said, really? I said, yeah, that's what he's watching. Have you ever looked at what he's watching on TV? Not really. All of his shows. And he's making sure he gets to every one of those shows on time. He's very structured, organized, prioritized to what's important to him, which is all those shows. And he does everything else just so he makes sure he gets those shows. He said, well, that's true. I tell him if he can't, if he, he doesn't get to watch the shows, if he doesn't get something done, he'll go get it done to make sure he gets to those shows. I said, have you considered looking into and investigating what is the curriculum and education that will allow him to do what he really wants to do? And the guy's sitting there looking at his mom with this anticipation, please, mom. Please let me. Please let me. And she goes, you really want to do that, son? And he goes, that's all I've wanted to do. She put her arms around him and they hugged and they cried together. I had no idea. I said, mom, that's all I've done for six years is watch these shows. I'm trying to anticipate it. I said, what do I talk about at dinner every time, every night? The shows. Yeah, we tune you out instead of listen to what you want to do in life because you're thinking that you're right and the kid's wrong, but that's not the way it works. Well, she organized it. He went online. He researched where to go, what classes to take, how to do it, what's involved, everything. Gave it to her. Yeah, it's a little extra money, but he is now inspired, ready to go to classes, going and doing what he wants to do, talking about it. Now they're listening because now they understand it's not working at McDonald's. It's not going and, and doing something that they grew up with. It's his world. And this made a huge difference in their dynamic because now they're not, they're respecting his values, communicating his values, seeing how their values are going to do it. Because now she sees my son, forensic scientist, going to make good money, got a career path. Now she talks to her friends because now she now understands what his values were. So sometimes the very thing, I had a boy, this is going to get, this is a story that's a good one. I'm in Brisbane, Australia. I'm doing a program on uh, learning disabilities. And I got about 400 people in the class on an evening talk, three hour class. A guy drove six hours with his son there, okay? Afterwards, he comes up and waits in line patiently until the end, he comes up and he says, Dr. Martini, I got a son and he's standing there who, look, and he pulls out a letter. Your son's not allowed to be in this school. No, pulled out another letter. This is the second school he's been kicked out of. What do I do? He's not wanting to go to school. He's not wanting to learn. He's not, he's, I'm afraid he's going to fail. And, and, and all these things, his fears are being projected onto his son. And I said, what do you love doing? What do you do spontaneously that nobody has to tell you to do? He says, cars. I said, um, in your room, are there pictures of cars and car things, magazines and car models and things like that? Yep. Yeah. The, the father says, that's all he wants to do is deal with cars. I can't get him to stop. I'm doing homework. I said, you know a lot about cars. He goes, yep. 
tell me about cars. What do you want to know? What's the fastest car? What's the most expensive car? I turned to the father and I said, is there a very fast, high-end Maserati, Ferrari kind of car dealership in, in where you live? He goes, yeah, within about two miles. I said, how old is your son? He says he's 16. I said, take him over there and get him a job there. And then the son just went like this. Yes. yes. And I said, most likely will be one of the best salesperson and own a car dealership and be a multimillionaire before you will be. If you did, let him go and do what he is inspired by. He knows more about cars. I said, you know, in, you know about engine? He goes, I could tear an engine apart and put it back together again. I said, go put him in cars and quit fighting this. He already knows what he wants to do. And you're cramming down his throat something he's not inspired by. And he already knows what he's going to do. And the second he gets 18, he's going to leave you and he's going to go do it. So he did. He did. And you know what happened? He became a multimillionaire. He sold more cars, knew more about cars. He didn't care cleaning up after the car. First weeks were cleaning up. But he proved to them that he knew more about the cars than half the car dealer guys. And he could talk to people and to tell them, this is why you want to buy this car, not this car. And this is this how you do that, that. And he was already selling cars within months because they thought he's going to just clean cars. He's just going to go and do go for stuff. He didn't care. Right. He worked himself right up the game. And his father said, wow, I have a different son. We now communicate because now I'm respecting what he's committed to doing. Now, if I ask any, have anything to do with cars, I'd go to him. He's the knowledge one. They respect him as his work. Right. He's, it was destined, yeah. but sometimes we don't see it. Physics girl, who's 13 years old, built a complete engine and built an airplane and flew it over the Great Lakes by the time she was 14. Built, starting at 12 through 13, built a complete engine, a cre complete aircraft from scratch in her garage, everything, right. bought the steel, worked with her dad to make money to buy and build this engine, build this whole, I mean, everything. If you go online, you can see it, physics girl. She now has a YouTube presence. She's now one of the most scholarly physicists in the planet today. But her father said, all she wants to do is build an airplane. Okay, the garage is yours. Go build an airplane. Do you think that we have to bring education to a different mindset of ask them what they love to do versus you have to sit in physics class, you have to sit in math class, you have to recite this, you have to recite that? Because we're creating 18-year-olds that don't know what they want they're so bitter. They're so upset. They're so yes. frustrated, medicated. Yes. So many of them are medicated. Yes. They get to college. They don't even know what inspires them. There's a great video called Search in Search of Greatness on 12 superstars in sports and how they were educated and what they wanted to do and how it was natural for them instead of the other ones who were forced to go through a curriculum and everything else. They never became the great. There was a lady named Marilyn Wilhelm and Marilyn Wilhelm had a school for children. And she was taking kids that were two up to 18 and beyond. And they were off to Rice University when they were 18 and becoming scholars. They opened up oil businesses. They were doing exceptional things. Marilyn Wilhelm. I went to her class. I've spoken thousands and thousands of times in the last 48 years, thousands of presentations. In her class, I was asked to speak. There were 30 kids, not about 25 kids. All over the world, they came to that class. They were eight, nine-year-olds, and she introduced me. And I started to speak, and this little Japanese kid put his hand up and says, Dr. Martini, may I ask a question, sir? Yes, sir. He said, I'd like to know the modus operandi, how endorphins and kephalins work in the cerebral hemispheres. I'd like to know the neurochemistry and the neuromechanics of that. I, and I turned to Marilyn, and she goes, I said, I think this hour would be wiser for me to sit in the class. And I joined him in this tiny little seat. And I listened to her teach. And this is what she did. She went and determined the values of every one of the kids starting at age two. And she monitored them four times a year 
to make sure that she was kept current with them because they were evolving. The values change. What she did is she let them excel in each area and let them teach the class. So one really loved baseball. So I want to know, you're going to go and study the history of baseball. You're going to tell me every great baseball player. You're going to tell me what Babe Ruth did, all the things. You're going to become the most knowledgeable man in this class on baseball, and you're going to be teaching that. And so she said, Bobby, in 1954, who was the number one baseball pitcher? Karen, at that time, in the acting world, who was the number female actress at the time? Engineering, what was the newest innovation in engineering that year? Boom. And she was letting everybody lead the way in their fields, but listening to everybody else's. And then say, so how does baseball affect engineering? And the baseball person would have to come up, how did it affect engineering? When they're making baseball, they got to engineer a baseball. When they're making bats, they got to engineer a bats. And, and the engineer guy would, how would you make a bat? What would you do to dissolve a bat? Between now and next class, you're going to figure out how to dissolve and create the best bat. You're going to get together and collaborate, and you're going to find out what was the greatest bat and how is it designed, and you're going to both present that tomorrow. Wow. And you know what? By the time they were 13, they were already college levels because they got to excel, and then she just kept linking everybody else's values into what their core value was and expanding them. And they studied philosophy, religion, sciences. They were the Wilhelm School. And then they think rich parents are sending their kids there. That's simple. So she went down to Harlem and she went to the upper west and east side, upper east side mainly, down in Harlem. And she took crack kids and parents, parentless kids. And she took the same most outrageous and proved to them over a year, what they could do with those kids and did the same thing. No matter where they came from, it wasn't the gifted children, but she started with children and showed them how to get engaged and inspired by doing what they were inspired to do in their life. Just like we want to do as adults, but sometimes it comes to midlife crisis and we're like, wait, did we do what we love doing or do we tell? Well, the reason we have a midlife crisis is because we have been trying to live by shoulds and ought tos. And Kohlberg says that we subordinate to individual authorities, that we go to collective authorities, and finally we have transcendence and we find ourselves. And most people don't allow themselves to find themselves and have squashed, and they end up on the medications, labels. So you're basically telling parents, listen to your children, see what they love doing, be okay that they're different than you. First of all, accept that it's okay. No, not accept it. Find out how it serves you as a parent. Because they're expressions of your repressions. But what if it doesn't? If it doesn't, it's because you're not looking. No, but let's say somebody has, I'm going to go extreme, a kid that sells, sells drugs on the corner. The reason they're doing it is because they're not fulfilling what their values are. You see, the amygdala comes online whenever somebody doesn't fulfill their values. So if a child is being suppressed and not able to do what it really would love to do, it goes into the amygdala. And that's why it's selling drugs on the thing. Okay. That's a symptom. That's not a solution. I've not seen, I've done, I've done a value determination. I've never seen drugs being the highest value. I've seen that as a compensation for not fulfilling highest. When you're, think about this. I'm, I'm just going to use an example. When a woman is going to get married and she's got a, the big day, the big wedding day, and she wants to look good in that dress and she wants abdomen's flat, most beautiful she can be, she's not going to pig out the week before. Right. She's got something deeply meaningful that's governing her amygdala. But afterward, she might, after the wedding's done, she might, because the meaningful thing is now passed. And now if there's no meaning, the amygdala comes online. Kids that don't have meaning and aren't inspired and aren't free to do what inspires them will end up in the drug scene. I love that. Thank you. There's, okay, I, I know that you have to go and you gifted me more than the planned time. 
I wanted to ask you if you're willing to, in the future, come back to speak about mindset and healing from depression with, without medication. Yes, I know that you say sometimes you need to, but most of the time we don't. We medicate too fast. We don't do the work. We numb our emotions. We numb our feelings and we don't own what we could do. Are you willing to share that? I'd love to do that. Okay. So thank you. This core value is my, this is just the tip of the iceberg, really the tip of the iceberg. So where can people follow you to start doing the core value, join your courses on your online? You have plenty of online courses. They just go to drdmartini.com and go to determine your values. Look for that section. It's free. It's complimentary. It's private, but be honest with yourself. Watch out for the should, supposed tos, and got tos that whispers in your head. Because those are, as Kohlberg says, there's individual authorities, and then there's collective authorities, and finally transcendence. If you don't give yourself permission to be honest with yourself, you'll probably write down what you think it should be all the time. Now, there is a divine level, but that divine level occurs when you're authentic. Our authentic self is our divine expression, and no two people are the same. That has to be, that has to be honored. Otherwise, you just have parrots mimicking somebody else instead of being authentic individuals expressing their uniqueness to content. Everybody wants to make a difference. You make a difference by standing out more so than just fitting into the crowd. And it's never too late to check your core values, to improve on them and to understand them. I had a gentleman 72 years old that came to the break to experience my signature program. I've done it 1,122 times, three times. He came to the break to experience at 72. He'd already been retired for six years. And I said, as long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you're ripe and you're rot, there's nothing wrong with the retirement as long as it doesn't get in the way with, with your service to the world. And he was sitting there just coasting and deteriorating, driving his wife batty. Because they both thought, well, someday we'll retire and do all this. And then they found out, you're in my hair. Give me some space. Well, he ended up realizing, I told him, I said, you're 72 years old. You've run businesses. Why aren't you consulting and making a little extra cash on the side and putting that into travel with your wife? And do... Anyway, we, we chatted and he started his consulting business at 72 and found something deeply meaningful and appreciate his wife more, made more income. They got to do things that they said they were going to do, but they were afraid because they didn't have enough saved money anyway. And they were just living confined. And yeah, it doesn't matter what your age is. I think as long as you have the soul, the, the, the immortal soul gives you the ability to do something immortal as long as you're in this form. Yeah, I think the biggest gift that core values awareness gave me, first of all, that there, like you said, there are no two of the same and there's no right and wrong. So my black and white became gray and sometimes colorful. And when I, and you once taught something that my mother says in Hebrew, she says, when someone is triggered by something, by somebody else, it's really something inside them, innate inside them that they're trying to avoid. Yeah. Go figure it out. So whenever I get pissed off on someone, I'm like, how could they do that? How could they so immoral, so not right? And I have to go internalize and say, wait. Whatever in others that you resent is reminding you of what you feel ashamed of in yourself. Right. And it gave me a, a greater self-awareness to why I'm triggered by it and why I get resentful, angry, frustrated. The trigger is a gift because they're making sure that you leave anything that's unloved that's left to be loved. But they're just teaching you how to love yourself. The imperfection of me. They're loving the, well, the perfection of your journey. Yeah. It's still part of the perfection of your journey. We're all on a journey learning how to love the parts that we've been disowning. Right. Anything we're too proud or too humble to admit we have that we see in other people right. is a button that's going to push, that's going to be pushed until we learn to love it and own it. Right. So when it comes to my children, the people that I value most is my, my husband, my children, my parents, my siblings. I'll add when something happens that I feel resentment, anger, or sadness, 
I'll say to myself, what is it in my core values that's not aligning? And what is it in their core values that it is aligning? And to see that they're also humans and to respect that they have their own core values and it's okay. We're all learning to love and be authentic. Yeah. Everything that's going on in life is teaching us how to be authentic. And the, all the buttons we have are all the parts we've been unwilling to own in ourselves. Right. I always say at the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in us. There's a, a pleuromic fulfillment there. But the moment that we actually have this judgment, we're too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside ourselves. Once we see that we have that, we love them and appreciate them for revealing to us what we have disowned. And now we get to own it and appreciate it and have more fulfillment. Wow. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom. And thank you, really thank you for teaching me and being my, my flashlight in my darkness. Because if I wouldn't put my hands on that secret and to understand that we have ability to create and to attract and to be a part of our life, that life doesn't happen to us. We're part of our life. Even if we're, it was a very big twist with me and God, because wait, God makes things happen. I'm like, no, God moves us to wherever we want to go with our thoughts, with our actions, with our environment, with our energy. So it was a little bit of a brain twist for me to accept it as a religious person. But then I see God in everything. And I turn to God to lead me. I'm a firm believer that if you're not seeing the divine in whatever you're perceiving, you're skewing it with your human bias. Look again. The divine is always present. Humans ignore and deny the presence of the divine. And that's when we have to learn our lessons. Right. And you can call divine whatever, like different people. I call divine God. That's where I call divine. But I do believe that God gives me so much choice, so much opportunity. And he says, come get it. You have to do your part. Come get it. Do your job. So that's, what, that, that's how I'm going to wrap it up. So thank you so much, Dr. Martini. And um, I hope to speak to you again soon about how we can break the cycle of depression with our mindset, with neuroplasticity and good stuff out there. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. In Mental Health Together is Better, you being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.